WXOJLP Northampton. And coming to you from our beautiful penthouse studios, this is Care Talk with Quick and Quack. You're here with Drs. Evan Benjamin and Bill Cutler, where we talk about health and health care. So this is it. This is uh, episode one of Care Talk, and we'd like to welcome all our hordes of listeners out there. Um, and uh, I'm Bill. We've got Evan here with me in the studio, and uh, we are really thrilled to be here to uh, to to do this program and share it with you. Uh, what do we have on tap today, Evan? Well, this is our kickoff show, Bill, so I can't be more excited. We've been talking about this for months. We've been talking to our friends, and uh, we're just glad everyone's out there listening. We know that, but Bill, look at those phones. We can't, <laughs> I mean, everyone's calling in. You guys, calm down, calm down. It's our first show. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get a chance to everyone. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, we're talking about health and health care. And uh, we're going to, first of all, we want throughout the show t- for you guys to get to know us a little bit, why we're interested in health and healthcare, and how we got into medicine and how we, how we think about the health system. Uh, we'll, so we'll have, we have a little segment where you h- hear a little bit about us. We're going to also talk about really the history of the health system. How did we get into the mess that we have of the U.S. healthcare system? Um, so really excited, Bill. Anything else we're going to do? Well, I don't know. I'm hoping that as as the show goes on, we can talk about uh, ways that we can uh, navigate through the mess of the healthcare system that we have, so that uh, um, maybe we can talk about some tips on on, on ways to get healthcare, ways to uh, uh, help the system work for you. We're really looking forward to having some uh, conversation down the road. I think we've got some some guests who we'll be having in on uh, on some of our future shows, and we're hoping to hear from. Our, our listener out there, we know that there is one out there somewhere, and um, uh, maybe we'll 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 be figure out ways to communicate back and forth, and uh, uh, and hear about people's issues with the healthcare system. Bill, I, I think it would be great that we have some great guests uh, lined up uh, who have some really unique perspectives uh, about healthcare delivery. Uh, so really looking forward to bringing those folks well, on. Of course, board. they're not going to be with us here today. So uh, no, no, today it's you and me. You and me, Bill. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna carry this on our on our own. Okay, right. and uh, and Bill and I have uh, carefully curated some great music uh, that happens to be on the theme of of health and healthcare, and I think you'll you'll enjoy hearing some of the music interludes uh, throughout our show. Yeah, that theme of healthcare being broadly defined. If we're uh, uh, if we're going to be doing that, so anyway, sit back, put your listening devices on and uh, we'll see if we can uh, provide some uh, material of interest for you to listen to. Uh, Once again, we're thrilled to be here and uh, thanks for joining us for this initial episode of Care Talk with Quick and Quack. And just remember, he's quack, I'm quick. this show we're going to do a lot of talking about our healthcare system and uh, good points and bad points 
difficulties of navigating the healthcare system at times. But we have a, a sort of a big, complicated healthcare system, and I thought it'd be nice if we could get a little bit of history about how we got to where we are. I know that's one of your fields of expertise, so maybe you can take us back to the beginning a little bit. And um, how, how how did we how did this healthcare system evolve for us? Well, we, as you know, Bill, we we have a very complicated, fragmented uh, health system, which you know didn't just appear there's a history there's a context behind it uh, and you see this in a lot of different countries that they got their systems in part because of the the history of the country because of the values because of politics uh, so it's an interesting history uh, it started Bill do you know the first medical school in the country I could make a guess but why don't you tell me uh, it was the the it was called the College of Philadelphia, and it became the University of Pennsylvania. It was the first uh, medical school established in the, the 1760s. 1760s, okay. That was, that was actually before the country was even established. I exactly. Guess. And, uh, you know, at that time, medicine was a very young science, uh, if, at, if at all. Um, soon, however, uh, the other Ivy League schools, Columbia and Yale and Harvard, established their medical schools. And then in the 1800s, the early 1800s, there was a plethora of, of new schools, medical schools popping up everywhere. Uh, at that time, you didn't need to go to college first. You could just sign up and, and become a doctor. Uh, not a lot of oversight of there. And there was gradually a lot of concern about the quality of uh, the, the doctors that were coming out of these schools. Um, and to, to counter that, uh, New York State actually was one of the first states to say, you know, w w wait a minute, there's just way too many doctors, a lot of quackery. Uh, we want to create a, a license. You have to, to get to become a doctor and see patients, you actually have to uh, have a, a license and there was going to be an exam that you would take uh, that you needed to pass to become a, a medical doctor. So that actually was interesting in that... So this is like the 1840s, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would say around yeah, 18, yeah, 1840s or so. Yeah. Uh, the other states followed suit, and soon you start to see a, a reduction in the numbers of, uh, of doctors, uh, which was interesting in that anytime you get a decrease of supply of something... Uh, like services, uh, prices would go up as a result. So fewer doctors, harder to see a doctor. Now, doctors at the time were, of course, paid uh, just directly from the, the, the patient, the client. Uh, they were paid in cash. Uh, sometimes if they didn't have cash, they'd be paid in chickens or eggs, whatever it was. But the, the price, whether in the number of eggs or dollars, started to go up as a result of the, the decreased number of, of physicians. And so, in that in that decreased number of physicians, that was a result of this the uh, licensing criteria. Exactly, but you know, even though there there was a starting to see in the 1800s the decreased number a number of physicians, there was still a lot of questions about the quality of these medical schools. Uh, there were just too many of them, as you know, uh, just like today back then. Uh, you know, education was a business. You paid money, uh, tuition to go to school, and so there were a lot of these questionable medical schools. And then and things really began to change in the 20th century. Uh, in 1910, 
there was a uh, very famous report uh, that was written called the Flexner Report. It was to it was really evaluating medical education in the country, and it actually made a significant recommendation to one close a lot of these substandard schools, uh, and then create an accreditation for the schools that they thought were uh, uh, were appropriate. Uh, and they also required you had to have at least two years of college to attend medical school. Uh, prior to that, anyone, as I said, could, could go. Uh, so the, this Flexen report had a couple of things. One, it increased the quality of medical education, but two, as you can imagine, it further decreased the number of doctors coming out of schools because the schools were now fewer, uh, fewer in number. So I meant, so that would further drive up the cost of uh, healthcare then. Exactly. So now you had in the early 20th century, the 1920s, uh, healthcare costs starting to go up uh, as a result. And doctors were developing in this country uh, you know, more prestige around their profession uh, because to get into a, a medical school now, you've had to have some college. You now were a respected member of the community getting paid higher, uh, higher amounts. And so that's when the, the sort of prestige around healthcare began, was really after this uh, Flexner report. Uh, so prices were rising and the number of doctors were, were small. Huh. So, um, and, and, but, but at that point in time, there, this was still predating any sort of health insurance. Uh, people were, everything was out of pocket or out of your barn it, that, you were, that you were paying for your healthcare. Exactly, and it really wasn't until uh, the 1930s that uh, we started uh, seeing health insurance. So health insurance was sort of born. Uh, there were some earlier uh, uh, health insurance uh, experiments in Europe, uh, in Germany. Uh, uh, we can talk about that later. But uh, the United States said, you know, th this would be good to create insurance. But when, it, when, in when health insurance was first created, it was really designed for just like catastrophic things. like being in a hospital, having major surgery, um, a lot like, you know. So it's like, like home insurance. Exactly. Right, right? So you have, if you have a fire, you're covered, but, but if, you, if the toilet clogs, you're, you're not covered for that. Exactly. Think of it today, if we had insurance uh, for your home where you know, every time you wanted to change a light bulb, you would put in a, a claim and they would reimburse you for your light bulb. Uh, it sounds crazy, but that's essentially what we've done to healthcare. So in the 1930s, healthcare was really more catastrophic, and it, and it made sense for the types of things we could do. Remember, healthcare was pretty simple then. You sort of could know all of it in your head as a doctor. Uh, there was not a lot of big interventions. It wasn't even antibiotics yet. Right. And, and so in the I know that nowadays a lot of a lot of the health insurance is done through employers. Was 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 health insurance at that point kind of an, an individual? Uh, an individual would buy their own health insurance, or was it, or were they getting it through, through larger organizations? When when did that start coming into play? Yeah, you know, it started so in the 30s and 40s. It was mostly through your employer uh, that you would have health insurance. And what was interesting, another little tidbit was that. Uh, during World War II, uh, there was a, a freeze on salaries uh, because of the war effort. Everything was going to the war effort. There was inflation, and the government said people cannot get raises. But there was an exception that you could increase benefits. And one of the benefits employers would give 
was uh, health insurance. And that's when health insurance really took off. It got more complicated. It was no longer just for uh, catastrophe. It would pay for a physician visit, pay for perhaps medications. So it was actually during the 40s where we really saw the the, the climb of private employer-based health insurance. Wow, so there's been a lot of evolution since then. So I think maybe we'll take a little break and just ponder that. So that was the 1940s. That's when employer-based health insurance really started coming into play. And uh, we started to see more widespread health care coverage that way. Thanks, Evan. J.J. Kale, call the doctor. And hello, everyone. You are listening to Care Talk with Quick and Quack. I'm Evan Benjamin with my colleague, Bill Cutler. And uh, today we are going to, Bill likes to bring in things to surprise me. It's a little bit of a stump the chump game we like to play, uh, talking about health and health care today. So, Bill, what do you got? Okay, well, I, I don't know that I would call this a, a, a stumper, but, but I, it, there's sort of a little background story here. Um, back a, a little while back, I, I uh, had some painful swelling in my, my right ankle, and a place I'd never had it before. It's actually really sort of down closer to the heel, and um, I had, uh, uh, I'd had COVID uh, about a month and a half before that, and I was kind of mystified as why this happened. Why, why is my joint sort of swollen up and, and, and a little bit painful? And um, 
so I uh, I was thinking, well, you know, there's there's this thing of post-COVID reactive arthritis where you can get some inflammation in a joint. I figured that's probably what this is. But I was about to leave town to go to a pretty remote area. And so I thought, you know, I don't like to be my own doctor. I should bring this in. So I, w I called up my primary care. I saw a covering doc who was very nice. And I was thinking maybe, you know, this could be a stress fracture. Or maybe this is an infection. So he looked at it. He said, yeah, I don't really know what it is. But but why don't we get an x-ray and, uh, and we can do a blood test and, and it will, we'll check what's called a sedimentation rate to look for a sign of inflammation. I thought that sounded really reasonable. And he said, you know, we live in this area, so we should do a Lyme titer as well. I thought, yeah, that sounds reasonable too. And, uh, and then uh, he did not mention to me that he also figured, probably just sort of as a reflex, maybe he thought of this after I walked out of the room, in addition to Lyme titer, there's a whole bunch of other tick-borne illnesses. And he thought, why don't we get those tests too, I guess. That's what he thought because when I got my test results back that it all came back normal and by the time that happened I'd returned from from um, my little vacation and 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 the ankle was all better anyway so about a month later I got a bill in the mail from from the from the lab I, I, I got the I got the doctor bill I paid that I, I had to make a I think I made a copay on the x-ray this this the bill for the lab kinda of caught my eye here so um, it's kind of interesting. So maybe I, I'll, I'll just ask you this: Like, what do you think a Lyme disease antibody test costs? Wow. Uh, now remember, there's price and there's cost. So here we're talking about price, and you're talking about somehow what the laboratory is saying. This is the price, and we're going to bill the insurance company for this. The actual cost, actually, you know, what does it take to run a live titer is on the order of, you know, $10. So what the price is, it, uh, I have no idea. All right. So the, the, the price of the Lyme antibody test was $86. Um, and then the – now, I have health insurance. Um, and – I'm assuming if I didn't have health insurance, that would have been the price, was $83 for, for, for a Lyme titer. Um, the insurance company stepped in and said uh, there's what they call the payment adjustment uh, aspect of this, which was not a payment. It was an adjustment. And the, the, so the, the lab said $86. The insurance company made an adjustment of minus $83.60. And the balance came out to $2.40. $2.40. Um, and this happened, the, all of those, uh, those tick-borne illnesses, the anaplasma, the babesia, the ehrlichia, these are all tick-borne illnesses that probably had nothing to do with my, t I'm sorry, nothing to do with my situation. The test was negative, but maybe it was a little overkill. Each of those was $115 a piece. There were five of those. So that's uh, $575 for those. Oh my now, the adjustment, the adjustment on the $115 cost was minus $110.06. So those each came out to $4.94. They were basically 5 bucks a piece. Uh, the said rate, the price was $24. The adjustment was minus $23.62. So that was a $0.38 cent test. That, that's what the insurance company said that was worth. And then there was the, the venipuncture. The price of that was $17, and the insurance company said, no, you had a visit that day, nothing for that, so it was zero. So as it turns out, my insurance, my insurance actually didn't cover this at all um, because uh, I, I think I hadn't met the deductible yet or whatever the, 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 the 
things were there. But because I had insurance, and I, 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 they didn't add up the total of the price, but I think it came out to something like $687. So instead of me getting a bill for $687, which is what I would have gotten if I had no health insurance, I'm assuming, uh, I got a bill for $27.50, and, um, and, and I did pay that. Um, so that is uh, – what's the percent there? Like 4%, 96% of, of, of what they were charging was, was taken away yeah. by the insurance company. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, so you know, we are seeing American medicine at its finest here. Uh, where every insurance company has their own negotiation uh, with health systems, with laboratories, with physician practices uh, on the uh, rates that they are willing to pay. They enter into a contract agreement that they set in advance, this is what we will pay for and how much, and they set it. They'll say for a primary care visit, you know, we will pay up to $65 for a specialist visit, we will pay up to $100 for a laboratory, we will pay this. And they do all this behind the scenes, negotiate these prices, if you will. Uh, and then what you're seeing is this bill, which shows a price which really is not at all connected to any reality, other than if in fact you didn't have insurance, that would be something they would request you to pay. And if you didn't pay and you didn't have insurance, they would even send it to uh, to collections to try to get their six hundred dollars. Well, it would be well worth it to them too, because the collections would probably only take out two hundred bucks of it. They could get four hundred dollars out of my pocket. But it, yeah. <laughs> so you know the the prices that we see uh, health systems doctors put down uh, is really just a, a fantasy. They know through most of the insurance companies they will not be able to retrieve anywhere near that because of the negotiations, but they still have this price there, and un unfortunately, it may seriously affect those uninsured. Now, usually what happens with uninsured is an uninsured person has to make the claim they are truly uninsured. They cannot pay that. And then what will happen is there'll be some type of individual negotiation or write-off of that uh, bill, if you will. And the, the, the lab here would know that if you were uninsured, that there's no way they would be able to get the $600 and, they, and that they know that their price was a fantasy to begin with. So really interesting to see what happened here, Bill, and what they, what they actually sent you and what your insurance paid, uh, knowing that, you know, craziness of our system is how complex it is and how every individual then insured or uninsured has to negotiate through all of this sometimes individually negotiating what they can pay other times just looking at what the insurance company has negotiated and laugh yeah you know i mean i i wonder if there's some advantage I, I, that, that maybe the the corporation that runs the lab can 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 write off the the hundred and ten dollars out of the hundred and fifteen dollars of the test that was adjusted down. That maybe that's that's written off as a loss for them, that somehow has an impact on some other finance. But that's probably something that that we would need a a financial expert of some sort, to, unless you know about that. I, I don't. I think absolutely uh, the healthcare uh, economists and someone up on billing in healthcare could help us. I think it's a really interesting uh, discussion, though. I'm glad you brought that in today, Bill, to 
uh, to really introduce the idea of the complexity of our payment systems that we have in place. And I think we'll come back to that more as another topic later, but thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure talking. Okay. Aretha Franklin, Dr. Feelgood. So, Evan, we're going to be talking to these people a lot, and uh, I think that our listeners should know a little bit about us and sort of where, where we come from in, in, in medicine and, uh, and why we thought we would have the audacity to set up, start talking on a radio show like this. So, I'm going to start by asking you some questions, if that's all right. 
That sounds great. Really uh, looking forward to this, Bill. All right. So, so I know that that you know you're a, you're a physician, but um, you've kind of taken a track where uh, I, I don't think you see many patients now or any patients now, and 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 uh, have gotten out of direct health care. And I wonder if you could just sort of tell us a little bit about that, about how you came to be uh, doing what you're doing now. Sure. Well, I did see patients. I was a primary care physician for about 25 years. Um, but I, I started, I started uh, doing internal medicine work <clears throat> and did my residency uh, down at, at Yale New Haven Hospital. Uh, very traditional medicine residency program where they wanted people to sort of be the triple threat. Take care of patients, go uh, do research, do teaching. Um, and that was the path I was on uh, to sort of be a, that type of academic internal medicine doctor, become a specialist. Um, when I had sort of an epiphany, uh, the Yale residency program had an international healthcare option for experiences. And um, I said, well, this would be really interesting. You know, what is healthcare like in other countries? Um, and so I went uh, at, as a resident first to Haiti uh, and spent time in a rural hospital for about two months in Haiti. And the experience kind of blew me away. What did you see there that blew you away? Well, first of all, this is you know one of the poorest countries in the world. Certainly, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. And the the resources that they had, the conditions that they had at the hospital and the clinic, um, they it was they really could not manage to take care of people. I was coming from you know, the intensive care unit at Yale New Haven Hospital. They had so many resources to keep, you know, people who are very, very sick and very old, you know, alive for a long time. And here in Haiti, life was kind of cheap. People died, young people from things that they never would have died from in the United States. And there was just a real lack of resources that they had to figure out how to be really efficient with. How could they use the limited resources they have for the biggest bang for their buck to improve the health you know, of this uh, community. I was at the Albert Schweitzer Hospital, oh, yeah. which, which was named for Albert Schweitzer, who was a physician uh, originally in West Africa, in Gabon. He started a hospital there. And um, Larry Mellon, who was a, uh, an heir to the Mellon Bank family, uh, sort of uh, in his 30s decided he wanted to have more meaning in his life and didn't want to just inherit the fortune and go into the banking industry. And he wanted to start a hospital in some place in the world where he could do good, use his money for good. Um, and he started a, a communication with Albert Schweitzer. Uh, they started writing to each other. Uh, and Larry Mellon b went to medical school at like in his mid thirties with the entire focus that he's gonna just open up a hospital somewhere. And so he did in the early 1960s, opened up this hospital and he named it for Schweitzer because of their relationship. So I was there and uh, this was, you know, right after the time in Haiti where uh, Baby Doc was, uh, was the dictator for mm -hmm. life. There was a coup, there was all this political turmoil. Uh, and I would sit in this clinic and people would come to me they would wait for days the first of all they would walk for days just to come yeah. to the clinic and then they would just wait 
for days. Sometimes, you know, they're just sleeping on the floor or outside waiting to see the doctor. Um, and it just blew me away that, you know, the resources that we have in the United States and how they needed to think differently in Haiti sort of set me on a new path to realize I didn't want to just be a specialist, triple threat uh, in the United States. I really wanted to think about the systems of care and how we can change and improve healthcare with limited resources. So how'd you get started on that? So when I finished residency, um, I, well, I had another experience uh, right at the end of residency going to East Africa. Very oh. similar. This was in Tanzania uh, in Machami, a small hospital on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro uh, and had a very similar experience. Uh, they had a little more resources there and they had a more intact public health system. So they were really trying to figure out, you know, with what resources they had, how could they improve the health of their community? And they focused a lot on immunizations. Like that was if they could immunize this, this larger community, again, very poor rural community in East Africa, uh, but they had a much better public health system. And that was really interesting for me to see that and be, and be a part of that, to realize the effort was to take the few resources they had and focus it on prevention. Uh, and the, they still had treatment. There was still a hospital. They still took care of patients with diabetes and heart disease. But it was really a focus on prevention, that that's where they were going to well, spend well their Well, it sounds like from what you're saying, not, not just prevention, but on, on develop. It sounds like they, they spent energy and time and resources to develop a system of care rather than just, um, you know, putting a provider in front of a patient and, yeah. and, and to figure that out. Exactly. And so that was really a, a good contrast for me for Haiti, which was so impoverished that they really couldn't even develop that system of care, where Tanzania, was, while still you know a very low-income country, they had a system that they were trying to develop. They, they've had regional clinics. They had uh, health workers. These were mostly lay people who they trained and the government employed and they would send people out into the communities to immunize, to check up on people, and then bring them into these regional clinics. So that, yeah, there was a system. Yeah, so it sounds like, so sort of listening to that, it sounds like in, in Haiti there was uh, uh, minimal, if any, resources and really no system. And uh, in, in, in your experience in Africa was more of having a, uh, again, very limited resources, but, but a system to, to try to maximally utilize those resources. Exactly. And so that really set me on this path to saying I was really interested in taking care of patients, yes, one-on-one -on -one as a doctor, but I really was interested in uh, the system and how uh, the system could be best set up to reach the, the maximum number of patients and be more efficient and effective for those there. So that's when I finished residency and um, joined the uh, U.S. Public Health Service and worked for the Indian Health Service. Um, and the Indian Health Service is sort of an interesting health system in and of itself because it is, um, it's a sort of a single-payer health system, uh, all by, uh, really by treaty, uh, Native Americans in this country uh, were uh, given health care uh, services as part of almost all of the treaties with the U.S. government, and that was the beginning of the uh, Indian Health Service. It was originally part of the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, but then got moved into the U.S. Public Health Service. 
and that was a really interesting place to work because everyone had insurance the all the employees the physicians were employed by the government the hospital was owned by the government and all the patients had uh, health insurance including for medications for prevention and for hospitalization um, so it was a completely different experience it was very also very impoverished area uh, a lot of problems that which were still sort of you'd think you were in a lower middle-income country there was still tuberculosis on the Indian reservation uh, we saw a plague uh, from uh, you know rodents uh, but at the same time, we were seeing a lot of more modern diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Um, yeah, if, if I can interrupt for a second, yeah. you know, th this, you know, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, delivery of healthcare and, and how, you know, the, the need for resources, which, which were limit, very limited in Haiti and in, in your African experience, and then the need for an organized system. And it sounds like in, in the Indian Health Service, there, there was a very organized healthcare system, but there's another element that I think you're alluding to, which is um, the the social environment and the the uh, the economic resources of the community in general, as opposed to just the healthcare system, and how that has a really profound impact on the health of a population. It's certainly not just the uh, yeah. the, the 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 resources in the healthcare system itself. Yeah, that was really also a, a, I think a big influence for me to see. Uh, a very different community uh, here was this was a Native American community which also used traditional healers and we had to figure out ways to have the health service the Indian Health Service interact with the traditional healers uh, and the, la the first language for most of these uh, people were was their their Zuni language I was on the Zuni Indian Reservation they didn't really learn to speak English until they went to uh, elementary school um, so had a very strong culture uh, that we had to learn. Uh, we had to learn these, understand the social dynamics of this different community. Um, so I was there and then within a year of being part of this Indian Health Service and trying to understand the social dynamics, um, a, a position opened up to be a public health epidemiologist to particularly to focus on diabetes care. Um, diabetes has really been increasing in prevalence in the Native American communities and the Indian Health Service really wanted to create a system to both uh, prevent diabetes and to make sure there was uh, an efficient way to treat people with diabetes and it was really a wonderful opportunity for me because I was really interested in this path in saying wanting to work with creating better systems of care and what it did was it uh, took me on this path to begin thinking about like how do we measure what is good care uh, up until this point healthcare was sort of like whatever the doctor decided was good care mm -hmm. and this was sort of the early 1990s where we sort of said well this is what good diabetes care would look like and it was before there were quality measures or you know guidelines that now not diabetes there's so many things around it but in the early 90s we had to decide what a, what does good care look like and how do you define it and measure it so it decided to be on this path of sort of quality measurement and quality improvement yeah, and yeah. who was the we that you were working with to develop that 
This was so what the Indian Health Service did is they have um, 10 regions around the country and in each region they designated a what they called a diabetes control officer and I became the diabetes control officer for the New Mexico region which in included all the smaller Pueblo tribes in New Mexico and I partnered with nine other diabetes control officers who were all over the country and uh -huh. representing different areas from the Dakotas, the Northwest, uh, Southeast, uh, Southwest. Uh, and we came together as a group to say, how are we going to create a system of care for yeah, diabetes? So this was really your first introduction to working on that systems of care uh, yeah. topic. Uh -huh. yeah. So that was sort of a big thing. And uh, my first professional experience, yeah. you know, I was yeah. doing this now professionally. Uh, I was still seeing patients, uh, mostly in the diabetes clinic, but it was part-time. Um, and then after about four years, we were living on this Indian reservation. Uh, my kids were born there. Uh, it was sort of time to leave. It, you can't really stay there long-term. You can't own land. Uh, sort of a hard place to, to you're, live long-term. You were a visitor in a different, uh, different community. Yeah, and I was a minority. And yeah. it was interesting to feel what it's like to feel like being a minority. Mm -hmm. uh, a, uh, a, a physician, a white doctor on an Indian reservation. Um, so the school systems also were very challenging. So it was time for us to, to move. And that's when I moved back here to Massachusetts. Um, where I really wanted to continue this work. I wanted to see patients, but I really wanted to focus on creating better healthcare systems. Um, mm -hmm. My first job was yeah, doing yeah. that. Well, I'll tell you what. Okay. Let, let, let's, let's take a break. Let's take, let's take a break. Uh, oh, you you sort of brought us through uh, uh, some really interesting experiences there, and we'll, uh, we'll come back to hearing more about you. Thanks. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years And the slow parade of fears without crying Now I want to understand I have done all that I could To see the evil and the good without hiding You must help me if you can Doctor, my
series uh, as we kick off our care talk or getting to know one another and let our audience get to know us a little bit uh, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about you sure um, so uh, tell me a little bit about uh, yourself uh, I, we know that you're you've been a very active uh, internal medicine physician your career what 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 started you what why why do you want to get into medicine to begin with well you know that it's an interesting question because it, it, it assumes that I really did want to get into medicine in the first place, which may not necessarily be true, but, um, you know, I, I, it's interesting because we actually uh, have great similarities in our background, which we discovered in our 30s. We grew up in the same uh, uh, rather privileged, wealthy suburb. We, went, we actually went to the same uh, small elite uh, college. We never met there. We, we met years later did, did through we our to, kids. Did we go to the same high school? No, we went to different high schools oh, at the same right. time. Okay. Different high schools at the same time. But we knew, but we <laughs> found we grew up in the same town, which was quite a coincidence. We did, we did, and um, but uh, when I went to college, um, uh, the thought of going into medicine was was really could not have been further from my mind. I didn't take. Uh, I took the bare minimum of science classes. Uh, um, had absolutely no thoughts of of, of uh, getting into a healthcare profession at all, and. Um, I ended up in uh, in San Francisco, and I was uh, working with a um, uh, a, a radio production studio, uh, Haight Ashbury Community Radio. We had a show on KPFA, and um, and what I was really interested in was was community organizing. Um, we had a show that was called Out on the Streets, and as part of that, I got to go around and uh, interview people who were doing renter strikes or uh, labor actions and things like that and we sort of would put it together into a, a one-hour radio show and uh, we'd, we'd, pr we'd produce in our studio over in the hate and then uh, one of us usually me would like hop on a bicycle and drive down take the bike shuttle across the bridge and get it to KPFA just in the nick of time to to put the reel-to-reel -reel tape on the machine and uh, play the show on the air it sounds like <laughs> sounds like Valley Free Radio yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could be. So um, so I, I enjoyed doing that, and I was very interested in, uh, in, in the sense about, about organizing communities and, and, and helping people to feel empowered in their lives and doing something. And I thought that radio seemed like a great way to be involved in that work. And, um, uh, and my partner, I at the time, who's actually now my wife, Lee, we, we, we decided to move together back to Massachusetts and I was really hoping to work in radio. And when I arrived in uh, in Western Massachusetts, the day I got here, there was an, an ad in the paper for a, uh, a, a new radio station, a popular local radio station that plays some great music. This was 1982. They'd been open for about a year, and they were looking for a person to do their morning show. And I thought that this was destiny, that, that I was going to be on the radio. Perfect uh, for you. Perfect for me. Um, I didn't come close to getting the job. There were like several hundred <laughs> people who applied, and the person who got the job was fantastic. Um, so you didn't feel bad. What well, I, I realized that that 
if I wanted to be in radio, I really needed to do some, some serious training. I probably needed to get more education. And I thought about doing that and, and thought, you know, if I'm going to go back to school, I don't know that that's exactly what I want to do. And, and, um, and for my, a lot of my life, I thought that, that uh, the legal profession was interesting. I actually uh, had a, uh, an informational interview with uh, a great local uh, uh, civil liberties lawyer who's uh, st still in the area, does a lot of commentary around here. And he took me out to breakfast at Jake's in Northampton. And I heard about what he was doing, which was everything I would want to do in law, but I also heard about his day-to-day -day activities, and it just sounded like it was a lot of being in an office, working with books, do, you know, researching things. And I thought, no, I, I really want to be more face-to-face -face with people. And, and after that, I, um, I just made this uh, kind of spontaneous decision. There, there were other doctors in my family, and I thought, you know, I should, just, I should go into medicine. And I had to go and take pre-med courses and... Um, I ended up getting into University of Massachusetts, which was great because um, UMass Med School in Amherst. You, yep. I mean in uh, Worcester. In Worcester, yeah. UMass Med School in Worcester. Yeah. They they had a, they had a, a great deal where, you know, it, it, it was very ex medical school was expensive, but they they had um, a deal where if it, it, their their tuition was less, and if you if you committed to working in Massachusetts for a year after you graduated, uh, most of your tuition was actually forgiven. Um, and I thought, well, I don't really plan on going anywhere else anyway, so I'd, I'd like to live in Massachusetts. So I, I, uh, um, I decided to go there. I, I, the, uh, my, my, my medical school essay that I had to write to get in um, was actually about why I always thought I would never want to be a doctor. Um, but, uh, and, and they still let you in. They still let me in. And I'll, I'll there say must that have been something I'll about you, Bill. I'll say that the, the other thing that I did was I was actually kind of interested in alternative healing stuff, and, and I'd been living in, 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 uh, in the, the Pioneer Valley as I was taking pre-med courses, and um, I took a course on herbal medicine. I took a course in massage therapy, and I realized that, that one of the things about that was that, that uh, there was this whole health insurance industry and health insurance didn't cover those things so it would be very expensive for people and you were talking uh, I when you were telling us about you're, go you're going into medicine how there was very little in the way of uh, um, uh, organized uh, things about how, how care had to be provided it was mostly sort of the doctor could decide what to do and I was thinking well I can go to medical school and, and become a doctor and I can decide that somebody needs things like acupuncture, somebody needs massage therapy. And I had this vision that maybe working in a clinic where I'd be working with other uh, healthcare practitioners do, doing other, other things and that, that I would be able to wield my power as a physician to get in, insurers to, to cover those things. And I, and I actually think that there was some truth to that at the time when I was uh, planning to go to medical school. But by the time I finished medical school and residency training, yeah. that was absolutely not true. Yeah, and we. This is one of the challenges we know, and that you and I will spend a lot of time in our in our talk show here talking about those challenges. So, uh, I love though the the intent you had. Uh, you really wanted to help people, at regardless of the system, the ability to pay, the the, the insurance. Uh, oh, how naive you were! Oh, how naive <laughs> I was. That, that's absolutely true. <laughs> and and you know, and I had this other thought, which was that. Um, I had had experiences and I had friends who had had experiences with the healthcare system which were very disempowering to go in there and just feel like 
you've got no control over what's going on. And, and for me, what was really important was I, I felt that I had pretty good communication skills and that I could use my knowledge and understanding of medicine to help people better understand what was going on with themselves, with their own, with their own bodies, with their, with, with their own health. And, um, uh, to allow them to feel more empowered to 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 to, be, to participate in 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 their own healthcare, um, so um, that was my focus. I my my original thought also was that that healthcare might not be my full time work. That I, that there were other things I was interested in, and. Um, and and I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll just find some kind of work where I I was thinking maybe I'd work in an emergency room for a while, and, and you know have have shifts in an emergency room, and uh, and then I would have time for for uh, family and other things, and um, but when I got involved in residency training, which was very much hospital based, you alluded to that when you were talking about your training, um, I was incredibly struck by. For instance, working in the intensive care unit uh, at a uh, at, I was at Berkshire Medical Center in Pittsfield, and and um, and I would see people coming back. You know, in the course of a month, I'd see somebody come in for congestive heart failure. We'd take care of them; they'd get better, and then they'd be back again a week or two later. And what I was realizing was that that the real aspects of healthcare happened outside the hospital in their own lives and 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 you know what what happened in between hospitalizations was just a whole lot more important in the long for the long-term health of patients and so that got me very interested in primary care and um and i just felt like if i was going to work in the healthcare field primary care should be the the place i should go yeah you know we're we've learned so much uh that the health is determined by so many other things than just the health care system. A uh, number of studies have shown that the health system probably accounts for about 15% of the impact on someone's health. And it's really all what they do between the visits and, and the social determinants of health. So I think you were bringing, you were far ahead uh, in many ways. You were thinking about this early on uh, and coming at it from a very different perspective. Yeah, maybe coming at it from a different perspective. So anyway, so so yeah, so in my training, it became very important to me, and I thought about how important primary care was. And maybe um, the next time we, that we talk, I can tell you how I spent the last ten years of my career doing anything I could to get out of doing primary care. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, I think this is a great place to take a take a break. So uh, thank you so much, Bill. out of time here and we just want to let you know that you've been listening to Care Talk on WXOJLP Northampton at 103.3 FM and streaming at valleyfreeradio.org and uh, we've got great programming on this station that we'd like to tell you about on Saturdays from 5 to 7 p.m. you can hear Nine Volt Heart which is hosted by our mentor Ed Malachowski playing some great music uh, featuring a lot of music that's coming up here in the Pioneer Valley. That's 9 Volt Heart from 5 to 7 p.m. on Saturdays. And we'd also love to hear from you. Uh, our email address is caretalk at valleyfreeradio.org. 
And uh, we want to also plug just a few of our uh, friends here, our public service announcement. Uh, we'd like to share that there's some great work being done at a positive place at Cooley Dickinson Hospital, an organization helping to care for those HIV and AIDS. And they do a great job over at, over at Positive Place. And in, in the future, we'd love to have um, you come and join the conversation up with us. We'll be having some other guests as well. But uh, once again, you can reach us by email at caretalk at valleyfreeradio.org. And we might even try to get you uh, get some of our listeners live on the radio at some point. But we'll have to clear that first with our malpractice attorney, Heidi Evidence. If you're calling in and you're having a hard time getting through, uh, we'll refer you uh, to our director of telephonic complaints, Don Enser. So it's been great, Bill. We had a good time this hour, and we're looking forward to seeing everyone and hearing everyone. Uh, and thanks for listening. Thanks so much. See you all next week.